This is the Canadian Passive and Active Real Estate Podcast, investing and wealth building with Connie Buna and Roland Kim. Hi, everybody. This is Connie Buna. This is Roland Kim. This is the Real Estate Investment Podcast, and I'm super excited today, Roland. We've got an awesome guest in the studio with us. Very exciting. First guest we've had. James Canal. I'm honored to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. What a pleasure. So just to set the stage a little bit, James, Roland and I are going to just ask you a series of questions, learn more about your business and learn more about your insights in the investment world. And really the purpose of our podcast is to just convey insights and knowledge to investors and realtors alike in the marketplace. So really looking forward to your candor. I can't wait to talk to you guys about what's happening in the market. It's changing quite fast right now. Beautiful. James, thanks for being with us today. One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit, and I know you have a lot of experience, is the Smith Maneuver. We've never covered that on our podcast. From a high level, do you want to kind of cover what it is and who it suits well? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a great investment option. The start of the concept is that anytime you take money to invest, if you borrow that money, the interest becomes tax deductible. The only interest that we pay as Canadians that is not tax deductible is the interest on our primary residence and then the interest on consumer debt. So like credit card debt or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the Smith Maneuver allows you to borrow the principal back from your residence as you pay the principal down. And then as long as you use that board money for investment purposes, the interest becomes tax deductible. Mm -hmm. So slowly and steadily over time, you make the mortgage payment, a portion of that is principal, you reborrow the principal back, and then an ever-increasing portion of your mortgage payment on your personal property becomes tax deductible. And then it snowballs because the more you pay down, the more you borrow, the more it becomes tax deductible, the bigger your tax return, the more you can pay down. And it really rapidly accelerates how fast you can convert non-deductible debt into deductible debt. And those deductions can make hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference over the lifetime of the mortgage. Mm. So the answer to who it's great for is any Canadian homeowner, because Mm -hmm. whether you have a teeny tiny little condo or a big old mansion, if you own a primary residence, it's a strategy to allow you to convert that debt to deductible interest. And those deductions add up to more net worth over your financial lifetime. Amazing. And I like to sometimes break things down even further to like break it down to me like I'm in grade two. So take me through the steps. I'm I'm a client. I'm sitting in front of you. You helped yeah. me purchase my first property, let's say 10 years ago. So I have a really solid amount of equity in my primary residence right now. What does the conversation look like? How am I, like, what is the literal mechanisms? Like, where's the money being invested into? Like, talk me through the... Steps. Totally. So it's disclaimer time. Of course, I'm a realtor, not an accountant, not a mortgage broker, but I know quite a bit about it. So I can I can speak to that. If you have 10 years of mortgage pay down, then you can do a one-time borrow out. Mm -hmm. So that would be like taking a home equity line of credit Mm -hmm. to invest. We'll talk about what to invest in in just a second. But the Smith maneuver actually sets you up with what's called a readvanceable mortgage. So an example, the one that I have in my personal residence is the Scotia Step. Several banks have a readvanceable. So that month by month, you know, you make a $2,000 payment, 1,000 interest, 1,000 principal. That principal is paid down. It immediately gets reborrowed back out. And mm-hmm. now that portion of the interest on that $1,000 sliver becomes deductible. 
Mm-hmm. So that's why it's not a big flashy move. It's a gradual process that yep. allows you to month in, month out, make more of that. You know, let's say that you bought a $500,000 house, 20% down that 400,000 goes from non-deductible payment to deductible to payment over time. So the answer of what can you invest in? The answer is really anything. Mm-hmm. If you have enough accumulated, you could use that as the down payment on an income property. Mm-hmm. However, most people start by just buying, you know, securities, okay. stocks, bonds, mutuals, ETFs, you name it, because, you know, it's only a thousand bucks at a time. Yes. So you're typically investing in smaller investments. And again, not a financial advisor, but most people <laughs> typically would invest in something that's a little on the safer side. Mm-hmm. So like an index fund yeah. or, you know, a low interest, well-diversified mutual. But, you know, if you're flying by the seat of your pants and you're feeling like cryptos and growth stocks <laughs> are your thing, whatever you choose to invest in, that's what you're investing in. And you, can, you can write off the interest payment on that borrowed money. Got it. Okay. Awesome. It's always interesting to think about the variety of ways in which you can use your, certainly your primary residence and your real estate holdings to facilitate diversification, to continue to diversify, not just in your holdings. You may have a detached home. You may want to purchase a parcel of land or something different or, you know, take some position in your equity and move that into stable financial money market investments. But lots of options. Very neat. What's the downside? Do you have to clear it out if you sell the house? If you do sell that primary residence, then there's some maneuvering your accountant will have to do to reclassify the debt and then shift that debt portion onto the next purchase. So it adds steps. It'll add a bit of a tax bill, but I mean, you know, a few thousand dollars in tax bill compared to the hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax returns you're going to get is is more than worth it. So Mm -hmm. the key to remembering about the Smith Maneuver is it's meant for your primary residence Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if you own 15 properties... 14 of them, the interest is going to be tax deductible because they are investments. So it's all about that principal residence. So, Mm -hmm. you know, again, remember, don't think you're too small of a player for it because, you know, even if you own a $150,000 condo and that's your humble little home, you still get a tax deduction and that's still going to make a big impact on your family's net worth. Awesome. That's fantastic. James, you have a lot of experience in the Alberta real estate investment market through Edmonton and now in Vancouver for quite a few years. What are the differences in being a landlord in the two provinces? Yeah, that's a great question. Alberta's landlord rules are very much so targeted more towards the landlord. So, you know, in terms of Canadian provinces, every province has their own different series of landlord and tenant laws. In Alberta, it's mostly shifted towards favoring the landlord. So a couple of real examples would be, you know, evictions. Mm -hmm. You can file an eviction with the Residential Tenancy Dispute Resolution Service on the second, if somebody doesn't pay on the first. And the lag time to get a hearing is only about three to six weeks. Wow. Wow. So you can go from tenant not paying to court-ordered removal of tenant from property with a bailiff and police support in six to eight weeks Mm. uh, for non-payment, for example. Another key difference is it's a deregulated market. So the rent will go up and down based on market forces. There's no rental restriction in terms of, you know, an annual percentage increase that's allowed. Mm. So if it's a really hot growth year like we're in right now, tenants are going to see rental increases of $100, $200, $400. It just, whatever the market will bear, that's where the rent goes to. And is that something that can be negotiated on an annual basis with your tenant? Like if you're up to the expiry of your, let's say your one-year term or your one-year lease, can you double the rent? 
Yes, you can. It's wow. every 12 months. So it's not on tenant turnover. It's with an existing tenant. Every 12 months, the rent can be increased, whether mm-hmm. they're on a fixed term or month to month. Now, speaking of fixed term and month to month, in BC, the tenants typically are just automatically allowed to go month to month after a 12-month term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you write your term in Alberta as a fixed term, at the end of that 12 months, the lease is over. It ends. Without further notice Without required. further notice. So mm. depending on how the landlord wants to handle the situation, you could literally tell your tenant 10 days before the lease expires, hey, by the way, just reminding you that your lease expires, you've got to be out of here in 10 days. Oof. I've chosen not to extend your lease. Now, tenants in Alberta typically are a little more educated, so they don't assume that mm-hmm. they go month to month. But mm-hmm. again, we see these situations happen. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, on a month to month tenancy, as long as you give 90 clear days notice, you can end a month to month tenancy for any reason. So wow. 90 days notice. Is 90 the, days notice. with For any reason. For any reason. I, and reason doesn't have to even be given. Mm. The reason is I'm terminating the tenancy. The tenancy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So at the end of the of the fixed term lease, if I'm raising the rent, how much notice do I give? 90 clear days to, Again. Okay. to raise rent. Yeah. Amazing. And then totally different than BC. Totally different than BC. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in BC, there's rental raise restrictions. The tenants have way more rights for staying in a place. Leases automatically switch to month to month. It's a very long and drawn out process to even serve evictions, let alone win a hearing for non-payment. So, you know, it's it's tougher to get tenants out of places if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Alberta, if, if there's a problem tenant, it's very flexible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the flip side of the coin is when it's a deregulated market, you know, I haven't ever really seen rents come down in any significant way in BC. Whereas in Alberta, when the market's in a down cycle, yes. the rents will come down just like they can come up. So that's the you know market force driven mindset is the rent is always exactly what it's supposed to be for every tenant, whether it's up or down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you find the relationship between the tenant and the landlord just as stable in, in Alberta? Might I, even be more, right? Because it's like everyone has the ability to get out of relationship. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, tenants, you know, it's, it's just as easy for tenants to leave. And so if a tenant wants to, you know, change premises because they're being offered a better deal somewhere else, yes. it gives the tenant more fluidity as well. Mm-hmm. So the the real effect is there's more moving of tenants mm-hmm. just because it's easier for both parties to move. So if it's not a good fit, you know, either the landlord or the tenant can choose to end that agreement fairly easily. And right. it's, it's a fluid change of, of tenancy. So, you know, as an investor, you know that if you happen to select a poor tenant, you're protected because it's easier to get them out. Mm-hmm. As a tenant, you know, it gives you a little less certainty in terms of your accommodations, but as long as you are in good communication with your landlord, you always know that you're paying the right amount of rent. Mm-hmm. You're never you're never going to pay more than market, but you're often never going to be paying less. And one of the things that um that I'm sure you're keenly aware of in Vancouver is is just the scarcity of rental inventory in our city. What's that like in in Edmonton, like your your other primary territory? Edmonton, it's more of a balanced market. You know, the citywide vacancy rate usually hovers in the 5% range. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, zero to one, kind of Vancouver style in Mm -hmm. the hottest, most popular neighborhoods, especially near the university. Mm -hmm. Um, The University of Alberta has about 50,000 students. So Mm -hmm. anywhere within walking distance is in high, high demand. But our less desirable, you know, kind of peripheral peripheral neighborhoods right. you know, you'll see vacancy rates sometimes as high as 10% in those neighborhoods okay so you know it gives the tenants an opportunity to ask for incentives mm-hmm. you know depending on the neighborhood or very few people move during the winter so tenants who are looking during the winter will often ask for you know half a month of free rent or 
you know, a decreased security deposit or stuff like that. But on the flip side of the coin, there's still plenty of tenants to go around. But, you know, a typical lease up period in Edmonton would be 30 to 45 days where mm. Vancouver, the second you put it on the market, you're inundated <laughs> with inquiries. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 truly unreal mm-hmm. to just think about the scarcity of inventory. Interesting. What is the, I don't want to derail, is there another question that you wanted to? Kind of leading into that is what's your view on the recent change in our pro, in BC on uh, that there's no more rental restrictions? That's, uh, yeah, the, the Bill 44, that's been, it's been chaotic the last couple of weeks because every person that we ask who's, you know, a, a broker at a brokerage or a condo manager, everybody's got a different interpretation right now. So <laughs> at the time of this recording, the dust is still settling on what the opinion is because I've, even in the last three days, heard three very different opinions on okay. what it means. So, you know, full disclaimer, I'm I'm still getting a hang of it. What it, What we're talking about is, strata councils aren't allowed to restrict anything more than 30-day rentals. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're dealing with a building called the Pacific um, by Grosner. It's a downtown building. And they had in their bylaws minimum six-month rental. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a client that's currently pending on a property, buying it, assuming that they could do executive rental on a 30-day basis. The strata manager is saying, no, 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 we're not going to allow that. We're and so we're talking to the broker who's saying, well, no, that's what the bylaw says. We've talked to a lawyer who says that's what the bylaw says. So there's this settling period where certain buildings, even though it might not be in compliance with the bylaw, might be pushing back yes. against these 30-day rentals. What it means from an investor perspective is it's a whole new world of opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, it just makes more buildings make sense for rental purposes. Mm-hmm. And 30-day rentals are extremely popular. And, you know, in a city like Vancouver, where the prices are quite high, the bonus rent that you get from doing 30-day short-term or medium-term or whatever you want to call it, executive furnished Mm -hmm. monthly rental, that can often be the difference between not cash flowing and breaking even or even getting a little bit of cash flow, especially Mm -hmm. with the increased interest rates. So I think we're going to see a settling period. There's going to be certain buildings where a bit of a battle will ensue Mm -hmm. between the interpretation of that law, the current owners in the building, people that are buying into the building, existing owners who are saying, oh, I bought into this building because I didn't want 30-day rentals. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're in a building that allows 30-day mm-hmm. rentals. And that, you know, there's there's a lot of different interests that are going to be combating each other. But once the dust settles, there's going to be a heck of a lot more opportunity for investors to create rental inventory and mm-hmm. ultimately get back into investing in Vancouver because that monthly rental is the cash flow maker mm-hmm. in most cases. Mm-hmm. So I'm personally very excited about it. Yeah, good opportunities to be had. And I think overall, I mean, my personal opinion overall is I think it's a, I think it's a positive. Mm-hmm. I think it's a positive for any strata owner to at the bare minimum have the flexibility that, you know, I've, I've been in so many situations with my own clients. Just earlier this year, I had a listing in, in the West End, very dear client of mine. She was making a lateral move. And the only reason she was selling was because her building was fully rental restricted and she is now retired. She wanted to be traveling six months out of the year. Mm-hmm. And so we were positioning her home to sell it simply because of the, literally because of the rental restriction. And so now we're in a scenario where she's able to hold. And I think, you know, ultimately like sad that I lost the listing and also super happy (laughs) for my client that she made. It was, it was definitely, you know, the right call for her to hold her home and, and have this rule change come into effect. It changes the game entirely for her. And in the onset costs like saved her 
thousands of dollars in both fee to sell and property transfer tax to buy new. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a real benefit. I definitely think there's a a positive impact to the city just from an inventory perspective, certainly. I'm with you in my concern, especially as a, as a well, on either side of the transaction, but, you know, as a listing agent, the, the, the disclosure concerns around how the bylaws are going to be reinterpreted is uh, there's still some, as you said, the dust remains to be settled. Like we don't really know. I would have hoped to have seen a little bit more clarity Mm-hmm. But I think there's still lots to be discussed there. Yeah, I think the rollout could have been handled with more black and white answers because mm-hmm. they there's a lot of gray area there that mm-hmm. everybody in our industry is currently slogging through. I think what we'll probably see are strata councils creating restrictions that are in auxiliary too. So they'll say, yes, you can allow 30-day rentals, but you need to give us a deposit and you need to disclose who's renting and you need to provide us a copy of that 30-day lease and, 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 and. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a lot of ands associated with being allowed to do that 30-day rental in certain buildings. Mm -hmm. That's where I see the compromise is going to be is that the buildings that don't really want it are just going to make it more challenging Mm -hmm. because the people that don't want it have a perception that the 30-day rentals are somehow more of a security risk to the building either by wear and tear because they don't Mm -hmm. care as much about the building or because they're coming and going more, which may provide security breaches to the building. So, you know, they're just going to wrap restrictions around that to make sure that the who is on that 30 rental is more trustworthy. And I think that's, that's what buildings who don't really want it can, can hope for is just Mm -hmm. being cautious with it, but they they can't stop it from happening because the laws are the laws. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to build a stronger financial future, but don't know where to start? Connect with our advisors with Prometheus Private Advisory Group. We commit to understanding where you are financially today and where you want to be tomorrow. By providing you the knowledge, tools, and guidance through achievable objectives, we can help reach your financial goals quicker. For more information and a free consultation, email ben.chan at ppagroup.ca. A stronger financial future starts today. Yeah, it is a great example of when you put really big rules in place like rentals with restrictions that stratas can imply and enforce, and then the government comes in and makes a big sweeping change. Yeah, I do feel bad for the people that bought specifically in buildings that don't allow rentals. Oh, me too. I do think, like you're saying, James, they're operating on an old way of thinking. You know, it's I think it's a false mindset that a building with no rentals is automatically a better building or, mm-hmm. or you know, age is better or or whatever it might be. But there's certainly, we have a few clients that they feel hurt, right? You, you, the, the change is opposing what they thought they bought. But going forward, I agree. You know, I think it's opening up a whole new inventory. I've talked to a few folks that I didn't even know were holding on to family properties because they didn't know what to do with it. And in the past, the market was going up consistently. So they were leaving them semi-empty, so to speak, with, you know, the elderly folks living there part-time. So it definitely will bring more inventory to the market. But again, quick change does cause pain. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing. James, I'm curious if you know much about the national housing strategy at the federal level. Is that legislation or I guess the, the more like the party position of the, the liberal government at this stage? But I've been reading a little more about that. Is that anything you're familiar with? 
You know, it's not something I've researched too much, but Mm -hmm. if you can give me a little context, I'll let you know what I think. Well, just my understanding is that the Liberal government has a specific intention to commit, I think, something in the range of about $24 billion in what they're referring to as a national housing strategy. So it's sort of an injection of money into the provinces in order for the provinces then to distribute that money through to the municipalities. I just, for myself personally, when I think about the context of the lack of inventory or the abundance of inventory in other areas of the country. I just wonder what your thoughts might look like on sort of at a federal level, that money getting trickled down and how that might impact the mom and pop investor, what they might be looking for. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it it does stem from the fact that there's a a movement to grow Canada with new Canadians. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of people coming here and they're going to need somewhere to live. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, we want, we want wonderful people to be a, a part of this country. What I'm noticing even in our own backyard in Edmonton is that the biggest chunk of new rental inventory that's come onto the market are purpose-built rentals. Okay. So the big players already know that these funds are available. And if you look through CMHC, through programs like MLI Select, yes. there's huge pools of funds available yes. for people that want to build affordable, rentable product. Perfect. So yeah. when we look at Edmonton, there's you know half a dozen new high-rises that have been built in the last three or four years that are they're nice, they're great quality, and they're purpose-built rentals, all in some of the best rental neighborhoods in the city. Like concrete? Concrete towers? Concrete towers, yeah. Wow. Like tw- 20 to 30-story towers in wow. Edmonton. And um, they're all purpose-built rental. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what developers are doing is purpose-building them, stabilizing them, selling them to REITs or insurance companies. That's, mm-hmm. that's what's happening in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that there's that happening out here in Vancouver as well. It's Certainly. just... In Edmonton, there's such a high concentration of it with very visible towers in a city that doesn't have a lot of high rises. That uh, <laughs> and perhaps a city that's um, a little more friendly to work with. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Permits, Dare we wade into those waters? Permits get issued in months, not years. In Edmonton, yes. yeah, yeah. So it's it's easier to get those projects in the ground and built. And so what's that? What that's doing for mom and pop? You know, I'm. I'm seeing where, for example, someone that owns a small apartment building, 12, 24 units, if you're in the same neighborhood as one of these high rises, there's very deep pockets there. So, you know, like what we see medium sized to smaller landlords struggling with is the new high rise next door is offering three, four, five, six months of free rent. Okay. And just sucking the best tenants out of every neighboring building. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's, you know, from an Edmonton perspective, that's going to happen to some of the the mom and pop landlords. Yep, absolutely. Which means that it's going to put pressure on us as investors to really up the quality of the product that you're investing in. So I think a perspective I would share with mom and pop investors is don't go for lower quality product anymore because mm-hmm. the people, the quality tenants in lower quality product are being given huge incentives to move into these purpose-built rentals. Right. So it's either the burst strategy that makes a lot of sense. So mm-hmm. you're creating something that people want to live in yes, or buying newer product to begin with. So again, it's it's you're competing with the top grade of the market mm-hmm. because if you're in the middle to the lower grade of, of property quality, if you have a great tenant, they're going to get offered an amazing incentive to move into something that's similarly priced, but brand new. Got it. And just for folks listening who may not know what Burr means, can you just quickly define Burr strategy? Yeah. Burr strategy basically means buy a property that needs work, mm-hmm. do the work to it. You've added value. So now you can refinance and pull the equity back out of the property and then you hold on to it and rent it. Nice. So, so buy, renovate, refinance, rent. Yeah. Another term I've heard is flip to yourself. So you mm. do everything a flipper would do, but then instead of a, the final purchaser being a third party, you end up keeping it. Nice. Great. And how many investment properties do you hold? Or is that part of your 
yeah. personal portfolio. Yeah, my portfolio has about 250 doors in it right now. Amazing. In, in Alberta and BC. And so do you, when you're looking at an investment, like your own, you know, investments, what are you looking for? Like what, what's the magic recipe for you? Always, always, always location, location, location. Okay. I've time and time again bought really nice properties in crummy neighborhoods that have been outperformed by older beat up properties in really nice neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've got properties that were not so great that I've bought in BC mm-hmm. that have outperformed amazing properties in parts of Alberta. So just based on market growth? Just based on market growth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's all about location because location really does prevail at the end of the day. And that's just, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a fairly experienced investor. Over 15 years of experience, my best located properties have almost always been my top performers. Awesome. So, you know, that that comes from looking at greater market growth, which city are you in, right down to, you know, micro market growth of what part of town are you in and is there infrastructure coming in? So mm-hmm. in Vancouver, Lower Mainland, we look at the SkyTrain. In mm-hmm. Edmonton, we look at LRT. Where's the city spending money to make the place a better place to live? That's typically a good location. Nice. Thank you. Talking about the year ahead, 2023, and the trends that we might be seeing there in investment. One of the trends that I found interesting that's become really apparent, I think, in the last year with inflation is even as little as five to 10 years ago, partner, I think the less expensive that you bought, the higher of a lift you saw over a short period of time. And it was almost easier to sell. It's been interesting in the last year watching a lot of good properties that need some TLC or need you know further finance to put into it beyond the mortgage languishing, right? And part of that is inflation to the inflation costs of doing things mm-hmm. are real. Like people are actually understanding what the cost of a small renovation is. And I think also that a lot of the buyers have a big borrowing capacity but don't have the saved funds. So I'm really noticing that shift where it used to be if you bought uh, an older property, you know, it would almost sell more quickly in the future at a lower price, where now it's interesting. I find a lot of, you know, well-kept or updated homes are selling quicker, even if it's substantially more than what the older home with a reno would be. Yeah, I'm noticing the same. A lot of clients are rather gun-shy. They don't want to be spending their liquidity, their cash, and also, depending on your market, but certainly our, our lower mainland clients, very hard to find trustworthy contractors that aren't already busy, busy. You know, busy in um, you know, building a multi-million dollar home. Yeah, what we're seeing with our clients, just to extend on that, is for our investors, we're actually watching people move a little bit away from the burst strategy. And if they have a fifty thousand dollar you know, of available amount of cash, putting that into a reserve mm-hmm. to subsidize negative cash flow while we wait for the interest rates to come back down. Because at least that's a little more predictable. Whereas the risk of a renovation, unreliable contractors, fluctuation in building materials, et cetera, et cetera. If you know that you're going to have a couple of hundred dollars of negative cash flow a month over 24 months, you know, that that's a five to $10,000 buffer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's there and you just let it subsidize the property while you Mm -hmm. wait for the interest rates to come back down. Whereas there's way more unknowns right now with Mm -hmm. the renovation game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're noticing that too, just not only from homeowners, but investors is they want to have more cash available just Mm -hmm. to have that security and to have a strategy around holding their properties if they need to. Awesome. I'm intrigued by the breadth of your portfolio. Very impressive to accumulate those many doors in only 15 years. So hats off to you, certainly. Thank you. Thank you. What was your first step? Uh, I I had leftover student loan money when I was graduating. And back in those <laughs> days, uh, 
you know, you could get a pretty darn good house in Edmonton for 200,000 bucks. So 5% down of 200,000 was not a heck of a lot of money even in those days. And um, back in those days, getting a mortgage was, you know, I mean, I had a job letter from my employer kind of scratched out on a sticky note, basically. <laughs> and they were like, okay, here we go. Wow. So nice five bedroom house, rented the rooms to my buddies and uh, basically had my own frat house. Yeah. Loved it. Was able to save the money that I wasn't paying in rent because they were covering the cost. And between saving on rent and just saving a bit of income, had enough for another down payment a year later. Did the same thing because in those days you could put 5% down on a rental property as well, as crazy as that sounds in 2022. And that just started the snowball. Yes. Loved it. Started going to real estate networking groups, uh, real estate investment network, yep. read Ozzy Jurok's book, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and just was a sponge for that information. Mm -hmm. And then the real accelerator was learning what joint ventures were and starting to raise capital, building business partnerships. And after about 20 houses, I bought my first apartment building. It was a 12-sweeter. And then a few years of that, it's easy to add doors when they're coming 24, 30 doors at a time, you know? Yes, so, yes. so the doors number, you know, it's, I don't own 250 properties. It's 250 units across, you know, about 40 properties. And then I got into, you know, started playing around with some development. So mm -hmm. purpose built a few rentals. And then now being in Vancouver, you know, I find the Airbnb angle here really, really fascinating just because there's such a scarcity of Airbnb inventory. So Actually, just uh, removed conditions on Friday on a unit in uh, the building Paris Place. Congratulations. Cool. Yeah, Congratulations. Thanks. We, yeah, We've sold in that building yeah, yeah, before. Yeah, right on 183 Kiefer. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's a pretty cool setup. It's a 1,200 square footer and it's got wow. three bedrooms. And then they, instead of a balcony, they've got a solarium. So it's, mm -hmm. it's going to rent like a four bedroom unit. And for Airbnb, that's... Uh, and right at the SkyTrain, amazing exactly. location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think we'll be picking away at a few of those. Nice. Because I think downtown Vancouver... The prices are, are lagging a little bit, so we're going to try to get a few more downtown while the market does what it does. Yeah, that would be my my next question was, what do you have your eye on or where are you guiding clients? Yeah, the um, uh, opportunities right now. The next one that I'm, I've am i got my eye on is the Mark. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that building, also an Airbnb building. That's end of Granville Street at Pacific? Uh, yeah, right in that area. Yeah, yeah. Drake, I, I think guess. It's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's on Seymour. Okay. Seymour, right next to, uh, right across from... The Vancouver house. Yep. So yeah, great spot. Really like it. And I think that'll be good diversity for us. Awesome. A lot of our clients, especially with this recent change, are mm. it's all about the furnished rentals. Yeah. You know, we we're selling on average two or three a week and you know, just helping people get them set up. And they're mm -hmm. they're they're very, very powerful performers. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing a lot of pre-sale purchases right now. Mm-hmm. Because developers are offering incentives. You know, we just did a pre-sale where the developer was offering 5% down, which we yes. haven't seen in ages. Yes. And uh, so we we got a whole bunch sold in that one building. Have they broken ground on that one? No, nope, they haven't broken ground yet. So the reason I like the pre-sale angle is because you can put the deposit down now and the market, the interest rates can kind of figure themselves out for the next two or three mm -hmm. years before you actually have to get the financing on the building mm -hmm. and close on it. So yeah, it's, you know, pre-sales and furnished rentals are what almost exclusively our buyers are buying in mm -hmm. Vancouver right now from an investment perspective, Inclu cool. including myself. Yes, <laughs> cool. You touched on a little bit about 5% down mortgages. And it's funny, I had a conversation with a client recently who felt they're a bit more established now. I think they've been around for about 20 years and they felt maybe that, uh, you know, the market mortgage rules were a bit lax. And it's funny how in many ways, easy it was years ago, right? Like 15 years ago when I started, I remember I have clients that had 0% down, mm -hmm. essentially the bank gave I got them a few 5%. Of those. Yeah. <laughs> they bought investment properties with 5% down, 40-year amortization. It's wow. kind of in some ways sad how tough we've made it for 
people to get into the market. Mm-hmm. But certainly the buyers today that we're working with, I think are far more qualified than we were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, and I, I get you, everybody asks the question to investors, well, how did you get into it? What was your strategy? And mm-hmm. the thing that allowed me to get in as an investor is stuff that would never work today. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of a disappointing answer for young people. But, you know, one of the things, one of the strategies I, I like to share with young people is one of the biggest assets you have as a young person is that you're going to own or occupy, which means that you can put 5% down, yes. which makes you a very exciting joint venture partner. So if you can find a joint venture partner who's well capitalized to partner with you and invest with you, you know, as someone that has good borrowing power and some cash in the bank, well, I'd love to put 5% down on an income property, knowing that my partner is living in the property, taking care of it. And has a vested interest. Precisely. So, you know, as a young person, use that 5% down borrowing power to approach people to potentially invest with you and... Have conversations like that with your your own family and network, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what intergenerational wealth is all about. And that's a great wealth transfer strategy without having to put 20% down. And then do what I did, you know, buy a property, rent the rooms to your friends and have a good time doing it. And <laughs> Excellent call, idea. And call it investing. Yes, absolutely. James, I, I'm so grateful for you uh, coming in today. And it was really, really cool to talk to you and learn more about, about your business and, and your insights into the investment world. Is there anything else you'd want to share with us uh, as we're, this is our last podcast of 2022 and yeah. launching into 2023. Any other, any other little tips or tricks you'd like to leave with our hey. investors? Thanks for having me, guys. And I'm super excited to be the the last one of 2022. Um, you know what I think is the interest rates create fear. And when when the people are scared, that's a great time to buy. So yes. the thing about buying markets is everybody says buy low, sell high, find a buying market, but the fine print is buying markets are ugly. Mm-hmm. And the ugly in this market is high interest rates. So yes. if you can yes. find a strategy to mitigate the high interest rates, of which there are a few, furnishing the rental, putting in a cash flow buffer reserve, it's a good time to pick something up. Awesome. Great point. Thank Thank you you so much. Hey, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you.